support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. WFIU Bloomington having some technical difficulties bringing you Noon Edition. We'll be back online with you just as soon as we can. Please stand by. Thank you. WFIU and WTIU, and uh, we are having some technical difficulties, but we think we've got them sorted out so that we can go ahead and have a show. Of course, we're operating remotely from, uh, as we have been the last few months, but we've had some questions oh, hi, this with that. Today, we're going to be talking uh, with various people about recent trends with uh, I have COVID-19. the phone on. <laughs> I have the computer on. I'm not sure which one I should use. And so I, I think I can hear I can hear one of our guests, Dr. Tom Rosmalis, is with us today. He is an MD with the IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians provider, and he specializes in infectious disease. We also have with us Graham McKean, Assistant University Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. And Shandy Durth is joining us. She's the Director of Undergraduate Epidemiology Education at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. We have had, uh, we, we did have invited Julie, Tom- we had invited Julie Thomas from the Monroe County Board of Commissioners and Jill Raines, the Chief of Clinical Quality at Greene County General Hospital, but we only have room for three guests and myself today because of our technical glitches. So that's who we're going to have. So I hope that uh, hope you're all here, Dr. Tom. I I heard you. So hopefully you're. Yes, I'm here. You're... Yeah, good, good, good to hear your voice. Um, so I'm going to start with you and just talk about you know we've we've had a lot of discussion about how uh, the numbers are rising rapidly and around the state. I know Monroe County's numbers are have been rising somewhat. How you know, what are the key numbers that we should be looking at in Monroe County to um, see how we're doing here? Well, as you, I mean, as you know, we sort of watch a lot of different numbers. We watch the positive cases. We watch the percent positives. We watch the hospital admissions. Um, to me, um, in taking care of patients, of course, the, the number of hospital admissions is always very telling. Um, that wouldn't necessarily reflect how many cases we are seeing, particularly in the younger age group. And I certainly understand that uh, we're seeing a lot of cases in that 20 to 29-year-old age group. Uh, Those would be individuals who obviously would not usually end up being hospitalized. But we have seen an increase in number of cases, I would say, starting at the very end of June and then uh, uh, throughout July. And I'm hopeful that Maybe here in the last few days, we've seen a little bit of a plateau in our hospital admissions, so that might be a positive. Um, But I think, you know, this was not unexpected. People are out and about more um, uh, since some of the restrictions were lifted, and that just allows for greater transmission. So I I think one of the numbers that we've talked about before, and I think... um when we had Penny Cottle on the phone, was Monroe County had had a very low rate of um, actual infections based on the number of tests. And I think it, 
it was hovering around 3.3 percent. I think the latest right. the number that I saw was about four and a half percent. Is that an alarm? Right. I think this Indiana as a whole has been running close to nine percent. Um, 8.9, I think, is the last thing that I heard reported. And Monroe County has been about half that, about 4.5 as of most recent numbers that I've seen. And, you know, 5% is sort of a threshold. Um, you want to really keep that as low as uh, possible and less than 5% uh, indicates that you are doing okay. Okay. Um, Shandy Dirt from uh, the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. So, we, you know, again, what what stats are you looking at statewide? And I know we've had some, there have been, I think it was Dr. Anthony Fauci that suggested earlier this week that Indiana could be headed for being a hot spot at some point. Um, how concerned should we be? So he's referring to the positivity rate. So as you guys were just mentioning, the numbers, looking at how many people are actually coming back positive. Now that we've got such good testing capabilities around the state, looking at the percent positive is a really important key indicator for us. And as you mentioned, those numbers are starting to go up. So if we look at the last seven-day average for the state of Indiana, we're at 6.9%. So as you mentioned, those numbers are slowly increasing. And Dr. Fauci was right that as we're reopening things, uh, students are coming back, that sort of thing, we're starting to see some uptick in cases. And so we're keeping an eye on that. And then we're also keeping an eye on hospitalizations because it's important to make changes if we start to see too much of a surge on our hospital system. And what are we seeing now as far as hospitalizations? So we are starting to see statewide an uptick in hospitalizations. They, at this point, are still half at what we were seeing back in April when we had that really large surge. So it's not as bad as it was obviously back then, but we want to make sure we take precautions so we don't get back to that same state. Okay. And I want to bring Graham McKean on now. He's Assistant University Director of Public and Environmental Health at IU. And, of course, the students uh, are going to be coming back. There's a lot of discussion about that. He will, for that. now, um, be joining Fresh so Air with Terry Gross in progress. If I, I wanted to ask you, Graham, about about what we're seeing, you know, around campus and, and what kind of things that you're, you're really keeping an eye on. Uh, that's a good point and, and something we're really watching very closely, obviously, and I think one other demographic to kind of be keeping an eye on in the state is the highest demographic across the state is the 2020 to 29-year uh, age demographic currently, and that's um, even more significantly higher in Monroe County specifically. And so we're seeing a lot of the spread, um, in some of these younger populations, if there's anything good about that, of course, they're likely to experience a lower infection. And so our big focus right now is uh, those that are coming to campus and, and, and getting those folks arrival testing, point of care testing, uh, those that are moving into Greek houses, uh, into residence halls, and, um, and then also having um, another test offered to all off-campus students as well. And so that's really our goal, is to start with the lowest viral load as possible uh, in the community and, and hope that um, you know, we're able to, to have containment and, and work through the processes for, for contact tracing and quick identification and those, those quick public health controls that you need, like quarantine and isolation. So I know that IU is, is really starting to, will be starting to have a lot of students coming back in the next next week probably i mean tomorrow's august 1st that's when students start start coming back here so um i i read some i read some indication that there's like a four-step plan for all students that are going to be going into residence halls i mean can you explain you know what's going to happen when a, when a student drives back into bloomington with their parents to go into one of the residences? Well, it changes every five minutes, so just wait five minutes, and it might be uh, okay. changing again by the time the end of the program here. Uh, but again, those those that are coming into uh, on-campus residences and Greek houses have a requirement for a pre-arrival test. Uh, we understand some of the equity issues and, and um, availability and getting some of those tests across the U.S., so we are also doing that on arrival testing too and and that will be um, again a point of care test a rapid test it's an antigen test um, slightly less sensitive but in public health you know we're willing to trade quantity and speed um, for a little bit of sensitivity in, in comparison to like a pcr test and so those moving into residence halls will be funneled um, through a process to get the on-site testing uh, and get the clearance test uh, the rapid results 
and then be able to move on to do their other check-in items for move-in. Um, those off-campus will have uh, collection sites and places that they can come to uh, to get that test because they're going to arrive at, at different times. That off-campus test uh, will be a saliva-based test, but that has to be sent off for analysis, so there's a couple of day turnaround there. It's not as, not as protective uh, from a public health standpoint because you can't take immediate public health action on the positive, uh, but we are asking our students to, to follow those healthy behaviors and minimize their exposures until they get their results um, so that if they are positive that we can um, make accommodations for any isolation, quarantine, and contact tracing. We're talking about uh, the latest trends and the latest news about COVID-19 on Noon Edition today. We are um, experiencing some technical difficulties, but we have three guests that we have on the phone with us. Shandy Durth is Director of Undergraduate Epidemiology at Education at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. Graham McKean is Assistant University Director of Public and Health Environmental Health at Indiana University. And Dr. Tom Rasmalis is an MD with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians, and he specializes in infectious diseases. You should be able to contact us by Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can send an email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. I want to get very quickly to a question that we had even earlier this week. I, mean, I know we have talked about this um, a number of times before, but I just want to see if anything's changed. So, Dr. Tom, you can answer this first. Um, we had a question come in to the station this week that says, says it actually is kind of a statement. It says, COVID has been proven to be no worse than our seasonal flu, so why aren't we back to work yet? Can you comment on that? Well, I mean, I've heard the same thing many times, and the fact is COVID is worse than the seasonal flu. Um, when people are comparing statistics, they're not comparing statistics that are collected and analyzed in the same way. So they may look at some numbers and say, oh, gee, this doesn't really look a whole lot different than the flu. But the numbers aren't, are, if they're not analyzed, collected in the same way, then they're not comparable. Um, the risk of mortality, particularly to elderly populations with COVID, is probably at least 10 times, if not more, uh, than seasonal influenza. And if you wonder about that, I mean, you can do some simple thinking, like uh, when's the last time you recall uh, seeing that there were 150,000 deaths due to influenza in a season. When's the last time you recall during a seasonal influenza outbreak that places like New York City were pushed to the brink of capacity for ICU beds and similar situations in southern Florida and Texas and Arizona? Um, we haven't seen that with seasonal influenza, and that's because COVID is more dangerous and uh, has a higher risk of mortality than seasonal flu does. Um, You'd have to go back to 1918 and the great influenza pandemic to see something that is uh, similar. You know, we, we've we've talked about this on this program several times. I know there there have been this question's been asked and answered a number of times. Can any of you suggest to me why it keeps coming up and why people don't um, seem to be getting the message that it's a lot more serious than the seasonal flu? I, th I think a lot of it is – it's almost a blessing and a curse the more I'm, I think about it. You know, would, would our public health response, would those healthy behaviors be different if this had a higher mortality rate? I think the fact that, you know, 43% of us or whatever are asymptomatic and have no symptoms and the fact that many people that do get this do have what you could call even a very minor illness, but it's still such a strange virus. So I think there's it's that that kind of – mixture of, of it, it uh, maybe not appearing as serious as it is, but it is serious. Back to Tom's point, you know, I think it, the true infection fatality rate, when you add in all those asymptomatic and mild cases, it's probably, you know, 0.6%. Um, that's, that's not a super deadly disease, but that's still five times more deadly than the seasonal flu. And it's really about the, the law of large numbers, right? And so as you have unfettered and uncontrolled spread or as you really, you know, remove these restrictions, um, you're going to see this because the majority of us still are susceptible to the virus. And so 
Uh, it's just the, the, those numbers and the percentages that, that can make it um, so deadly, as Tom had mentioned. Um, you know, some of these critical care capacities are are pretty low in areas, and they, they can fill up. And what's uh, another issue with that is, you know, we can definitely look at hospitalizations. You definitely want to be tracking that. But that's such a lagging indicator um, for rising cases, and I think we're seeing more of that um, with healthier populations getting impacted and more testing, not, not enough, but more testing picking up some of those more mild and asymptomatic cases. But mm -hmm. the, the psychology of this is fascinating. So oh, when, and I would like to talk, point out that we don't know the long-term outcomes of these cases. So even though up to 40% of people might not show symptoms, Excellent. we're starting to see more and more literature in the medical journals indicating that some of these people, even though they were asymptomatic but tested positive, they possibly have some heart or lung damage. So we can't uh, automatically assume that once they're healed, they're okay, like you might be with regular influenza. So we think there could be a lot of ramifications down the road that we just have not seen yet. That's a lengthy illness, too. It, it really is. I mean, some of these people have long-term symptoms. It's, it's definitely not the flu. Yeah, and if you could uh, expand on that, um, either of you, um, there, you know, sometimes there are uh, there are stories that come out or, or posts on social media that will say, well, you know, if you really look at the numbers, a lot of these people didn't die from COVID; they died from something else. But I, I remember reading something not too long ago about how COVID attacks all sorts of different organs and can cause death in a lot of different ways. So, can you can you tell me? I mean, did I read something that was accurate, or uh, can you expand on that for me? Well, well I can, can I can certainly say from a from a you know from a medical standpoint that those distinctions sometimes get a little bit artificial. I mean, if you are critically ill and end up on a ventilator because of COVID, and then die of a stroke or die of a heart attack, well, what was really the precipitating cause of death? You know, it, it, the COVID was the underlying cause, although we, it may be attributed to something else. Um, interestingly, to uh, expand upon what was said about uh, chronic manifestations, if you look at some of the studies that have come out of Europe recently, for Italy, for example, they report that about 85% um, of individuals who have recovered from COVID, two months after they've recovered, 85% are still having manifestations, whether they be coughing or respiratory symptoms or fatigue, and so this certainly does appear, at least in a significant percent of the population, to have lingering effects. So we're, ta we're talking with several experts about COVID-19 here on Noon Edition today. If you want to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send a question to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We had a question come in earlier this week about um, a treatment. So I'm going to ask, uh, and maybe Dr. Tom, you could, you could take this one. But Deborah asks, why are people using Neoral for COVID-19? The 100 milligram is now unavailable for people treating autoimmune diseases like lupus nephritis. Can you answer that? Um, there has been the manifestations of of um, COVID seem to be divided into two uh, uh, periods. The early period due to viral replication and viral infection and the latter portion due to immune um, manifestations, the immune response against, uh, against the virus. And so treatment is both using antiviral drugs like remdesivir and using anti-inflammatory immune modulating drugs um, uh, to help uh, decrease uh, inflammation. And so um, dexamethasone is the most common immune-modulating drug that's being used, but uh, others like tocilizumab and, and uh, cyclosporin and, and all a bunch of others have been tried or, or are in trials or being experimented with. Um, so those are not approved treatments, um, but... Uh, uh, you can might understand why those things are being tried. Yeah. So, what kind of progress has been made about about different kind of treatments? 
So, uh, you know, the, there's three treatments that are three or four treatments that are sort of readily available. One is the investigational drug remdesivir that received emergency use authorization by the FDA. That's the drug produced by Gilead, and it's an antiviral drug. And so we've been using those that drug in individuals who are hypoxic. Their oxygen levels have dropped, and there is clinical evidence to show that it shortens hospital stay and has a beneficial effect. Um, we've also been using dexamethasone, a steroid medicine, because studies out of Europe showed it significantly reduced mortality uh, in people who are hypoxic on, or on ventilators. So those are fairly standard for most patients who are admitted to the hospital with uh, COVID. Uh, other anti-inflammatory drugs are being used in an investigational way, interleukin inhibitors and so forth, when you're trying to decrease the inflammatory manifestations. And convalescent plasma is also available, and we've used some of that, but we are using that as part of an investigational protocol. Uh, the protocol that we're part of is through Mayo Clinic, and so when we do that, we do it with informed consent and, and all the, the, the remaining investigational process. So, Tom, we were talking about hospitals and hospitalizations before, and, you know, we, we've started getting questions about, you know, what's going on with the IU um, hospitals in our area. Can you give us an update on that? Well, we have seen, just as reflected in the numbers that others here have mentioned, we saw a bump up in cases over the last uh, two, three weeks, uh, an increasing number of inpatients. Um, it did not, as mentioned, get out of control to speak uh, as it was threatening back in April. Our numbers are certainly less than that, but we certainly have seen an increased number of cases, both the Bloomington, Bedford, Paoli uh, altogether, as well as the whole IU health uh, system. Um, the mortality, the number of deaths have remained very low, and I think that's just because we've learned a lot about how to treat these folks. Um, patients are treated with high-flow oxygen. We try and avoid intubation and, and mechanical ventilators if we can. Um, we're starting these antivirals and anti-inflammatory drugs right away when people come into the hospital. And I think all of that, and we've learned how to treat things better, I think all of that has made a difference. Okay. And so we've had, you know, there, there are a lot of things that have happened since we last had a conversation about this. Major League Baseball has opened up. The NBA has opened up. Some some of Major League Baseball is shut down. So, you know, what um, when you look at the national situation, you know, what what kind of headway are we making? I'm going to let um, uh, Shandy address this first. But what kind of headway are we making? Are we starting to starting to um, you know get a handle on this, or are we still just um, Sort of in the in the early stages of trying to get a grip on it. Dr. This is Thomas Smallis. I don't yeah. have any, yeah. I don't have any expertise in that area, but it's certainly interesting to see how different organizations are trying to deal with this. Um, you know, you have the um, the NBA basketball, uh, you know, uh, organization putting people in a bubble, and that seems like that has been pretty successful. And you see other sports trying to struggle uh, with how they can minimize spread. Uh, it all comes back, though, to the common things that we know work, and those are things like wearing masks and social distancing and avoiding large gatherings. Um, and if we can accomplish those things, whether it be in sports or schools, then we have a chance of being successful. So let's get back to the idea of, of schools getting back in session. And uh, Graham, I want to ask you to address this because uh, I know you know you've been watching the what's going on in Monroe County. So you know what what's going to happen when you know if you could just weigh in on on what the schools are going through to try to figure out how to start safely this fall. Uh, obviously, I think they're going through a lot, um, and this is. It's, it's such a that difficult balance and decision 
uh, in terms of, of how to approach that. Back to that earlier point, you know, I think if, if we had fewer cases, obviously, if we had better containment, those decisions would be easier. Uh, and again, you know, the greatest economic strategy, the greatest strategy for our children, uh, for our education systems, is to control the virus. And, um, you know, we've, we've lost that containment. Um, the last time we talked about this, things seemed to be steadying out a little bit. We were beefing up the centralized uh, state contact tracing system. Um, but we we had these kind of early reopenings, and we're seeing the highest highest cases yet. So that's just that alone is an incredible challenge. Um, you know, the mental health benefit, um, the just general benefit of children developing and being in school is so important. So there is that balance. We think we think still very young children are, are uh, less likely to transmit the virus to others, but it's still possible. The risk is not zero. A study out of South Korea a couple of weeks ago with 65,000 participants. The highest range of uh, transmissibility in a demographic to others was ages 10 to 19. So it can happen, and of course, they, you know, we can't put these folks in a bubble, and of course, there has to be other adults there, um, and it becomes extremely challenging if you're trying to reduce capacities in schools and on buses, and, and how do you go about that? lack of a federal or a coordinated response nationally to get this under containment. Um, you know, those are the things, those are the reasons why we are pursuing our, our aspirational goal, right, is, is essentially what I would call mitigation testing, not even surveillance testing. You're testing everybody all the time, and that's what we're trying to work towards at IU. Uh, we want to do thousands of tests per day because we feel that's really the only way forward. Um, you know, we're hiring uh, an army of contact tracers uh, available throughout the system. Uh, Shandy can speak to, they have an agreement with IUPUI to hire two or 300 additional contact tracers on the ground for Marion County to work with Indianapolis, Marion County, and uh, within the Fairbanks School. And so those measures, they're old school, and we've been saying this literally for six months. Bob and Tom, this was six months ago when we, when we got on here the first time, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, to the day. Um, we were, I, was, I, thought I, was, I thought I was tired then, um, but... Um, it's those same things, and it's not, it's not really fancy. You know, stay away from each other. Uh, the mask has evolved, but that's obviously uh, the solution. That's obviously the science. Those two things are so imperative, and that's really the only path. And I think, too, something to keep in mind for, for anyone is, you know, the, the, right now the definition of uh, when you get exposed in the community from a, a CDC uh, guidance is being within six feet of somebody for 15 minutes or more with or without a mask. So keeping that in mind uh, and really trying to limit the, your duration of contact, if it has to be within six feet or less, um, will, will save you uh, from having to be quarantined or identified as a close contact and being out for two weeks or maybe more, depending on the situation. So. Um, it's it is it's, a, it's an incredible challenge, and we're seeing that uh, because we've lost containment, because of what's happened in the South, because of you know these 60,000, 70,000 cases a day. That's like a Wuhan per day in the United States. Uh, you can't have containment, and that's why we're seeing a lot of smaller school systems with less resources, or, and larger school systems, honestly, K through 12, delaying going online, um, reevaluating, uh, like we are here. So. Um, not going to sugarcoat it. It's an incredible challenge. Yeah. So if you have a question or a comment about uh, our efforts to contain um, the coronavirus, you can you can uh, contact us, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and we will ask your question. We will also uh, we are also on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're having some technical difficulties today. This uh, entire show will be archived. We will guarantee you that you'll be able to to see the or to listen to the whole show at some point if you've missed part of it today but i think we're coming through on our radio now i hope and um otherwise uh if you have questions please send them to us and we'll we'll take them to our experts so uh graham this might be for you again too we've you know there's been a lot of comparison between the u.s and other nations I mean, are there other nations that really did um, keep this contained and are are not seeing any kind of um, you know second wave? There there are several. Um, 
don't really have a good handle on exactly which ones and how that how they all went about it, but there are several and then again that goes back to a national strategy. Um and again going back to the the economic strategy is it should be to control the virus. And so that's where places that are able to put in um early lockdowns, national mask mandates, robust testing similar to uh, you know Taiwan, South Korea, Vietnam um, some European nations are starting to see a little bit of a second wave throughout the EU, it sounds like. Um, other countries are also seeing significant surges and are handling it rather poorly um, in, in South America. Uh, India has a, an incredible number of cases as well. Uh, but it can be done. And it, it, again, goes back to that, you know, you can't really have patchwork policies uh, and patchwork decision-makings, uh, decision-making during a pandemic. Um, you know, it doesn't know borders, it doesn't know demographics, and, and so therefore that's why we really failed nationally. Uh, one, you know, we didn't implement travel restrictions enough to keep it out. Two, we weren't testing enough or, or the right people. We had a very narrow criteria to test people at the very beginning of this. And some of that was due to the lack of availability of tests. Uh, testing did not come online as quick as it should have. And so all those things, you know, it's, it's hindsight is twenty twenty here, but... Um, Clearly, those are things that, that could have really helped us um, move along, and, and it just we have missed that step. And so that's why you're seeing some of these uh, restrictions being re-implemented. And it's early, but you're seeing those kinds of things work uh, in some of these states where we had some really high counts in, in Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Some of those are starting to level off, and some of that is, is part of the messaging. Some of that's part of the behavior. Some of that's some of the restrictions and the masks. So the masks, let's talk about those for a minute because uh, – the state now has a mask mandate that started on uh, Monday, the 27th, and before that, Monroe County implemented a mask mandate. So should we start to see at some point maybe uh, uh, th those mitigation efforts um, helping the numbers improve? You know, How are we going to know that the mask mandate is making a difference? Dr. Tom, can you address that? Um, sure. I, I, one, I know that the mask issue has been uh, very controversial, um, and a lot of folks cite, well, you know, back in March, um, the CDC and, and other organizations did not recommend masking, and yet now they do, and, and there's a lot of criticism in that regard. I would remind people that back at the, at the beginning of this epidemic, we didn't understand that there was such a large percentage of people who could transmit the disease who were asymptomatic or presymptomatic. We didn't realize that because when we looked at SARS uh, coronavirus infection back from you know, 2003, um, we didn't see that. And so we were assuming that this virus acted in a similar way. And so we didn't understand the value of the public wearing a mask in that sense to prevent transmission. And we were also trying to conserve a very limited supply of masks for the healthcare workers. So as we've learned over the last weeks and months about asymptomatic transmission being a major uh, uh, factor in this uh, epidemic, uh, it became obvious that wearing masks would make a significant difference. Um, I think the mask mandates are a good idea. I wish that when we were at sort of a nadir uh, of cases back in maybe mid to late June, that might have been the time not to take the foot off the gas, but to um, but to enhance and try and consolidate our gains rather than sort of losing uh, losing ground. Um, there are obviously lots of different types of masks. There are cloth masks, surgical masks, N95 masks. It looks like masks are best at source control. So if you have infection and you might be asymptomatic, if wearing a mask prevents you from spreading it to others, that's their major advantage. They also do offer some protection in preventing you from acquiring infection. Um, I think to have maximum effectiveness of mask wearing, you have to have most of the people wearing them. You know, if you have half the people wearing them as they go to the grocery store and half the people not, that doesn't achieve what you need. You need 80, 90 percent of the people wearing them all the time in public. And I think if you can achieve that, yes, we will see a, a decrease in number of cases. 
uh, it certainly lags. It'll be two or three weeks uh, at least, but I think it would be uh, having a a significant impact. So now we have, we do have mandates so that, you know, at least the store, the store managers, you know, they're, they're sort of put in an awkward position where they have to um, police this, but they're in a position where they can say, you're not coming into the store without a mask. So we, we, you would think, realistically we could reach that 80 to 90 percent um now that the state has a mandate now that the right you know the yeah, different would, local would, communities have yeah i would think so i would just encourage everyone to understand that we have the tools that we have are relatively limited and we need to use them to decrease the transmission you know we all want the economy to be open again we want stores and restaurants to be open again to to get there we need to do what we what we can to stop the spread of the virus. And simple things like, you know, as we've said before, avoiding the large groups and staying distance and wearing masks and so forth are all are the tools that we have. And so we need to use those. And, and yeah, they're not they're not fancy, right? And you know, um, they're they're all imperfect. When I think we all need to understand that everything we're doing is not protective 100%, but they're all worth taking. And if you stack them up, you know, uh, then then that will provide that protection. Um, and just seeing, you know, public health and, and science kind of being politicized and polarized and questioned, and uh, these are basic things. I mean, we did this during the 1918 pandemic as well. Um, so I think a lot of it, you know, it goes back to trying to, to alter that behavior. Um, and a lot of what, you know, we're trying to do at the university and, and some of those things with pre-arrival, arrival testing is setting an expectation of behavior um, and starting it early um, so that we can be best successful. Um, so much of this is about the behavior science. Yeah. we've. Uh, Andy, do, we, do we have Shandy back? Yes, I'm here. Oh, good, good. Uh, So you've been listening to uh, the other two guys talk, so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to weigh in on anything you heard that you wanted to add something to. No, I think it's important. We're just going to have to normalize mask use. And the point about it is on the stores to make sure that's in use. I mean, think about no shoes, no shirt, no service. I mean, that became very normal for us. And so I think we can eventually get to the point where we have uh, mask use be very normal. And I think it is important to do a statewide mandate. It was required because when you have these individual counties do a mask mandate, that doesn't help as much because obviously people don't just stay within their county all the time. So the movement in and out of different counties and in and out of different states, that's why it's so important for large ge- geographic areas to have these mask mandates. So one thing that that I've said, I may have even said on on one of our previous shows, but it seems like with mask wearing and with a a lot of this that, you know, people that want to talk about my personal freedoms and you're not going to make me wear a mask and I can do what I want and all that reminds me of the secondhand smoke debate that we sort of went through and and pretty much if not eradicated cigarettes, we got we got up to a place where cigarettes are not welcome inside stores are not welcome in crowds of people. And, you know, communities have, and states have laws that say you can't smoke, not because it's bad necessarily just bad for you, but because it's bad for everybody else. So, you know, am I wrong to think that there's a, this is a parallel? I think they're very similar. I think about seatbelt use as well. You know, when I was a kid, it wasn't mandated. And now you just don't think twice about putting on your seatbelt when you get into a car. Same thing with uh, helmet laws in some other states. It's very common for all the motorcycle riders to have helmets. And so, again, we just have to set the expectation and set that norm and build it into the infrastructure. And then it's just something we, we can follow. And, again, there's proven science behind the fact that using these can make a difference. So we, we need to follow the science. Mm-hmm. And, again, yeah, they're not, you know, they're not N95s. We get that in public health. We don't. We just want any pr- bit of protection that we can, and enough people using them, and the, the, that's something we always deal with uh, in public health. Uh, is this individualism kind of issue? And it, to go back to the word, it is public health. This is about everyone, uh, and not wearing a mask can contribute to spread. Uh, it's it's disrespectful, honestly, to others, and all it's really doing is going to prolong this event. So, again, 
you know, the sooner that we can all emerge is really dependent on the sooner that we can control the virus. And so, you know, that's why these measures are so important and why we are seeing what we're seeing with these numbers in the, in the country right now is that the lack of that understanding. We've had a question, and it's, it's really um, – it relates to a study that came out um, – I don't know, not too long. I don't know if it was a, and I think it was a study that studied economics and college towns, and it basically said that IU Bloomington is the most vulnerable college town, um, economically at least, to an outbreak like this. And I know that you know you you guys are all involved with public health, but can you can you talk about the just the vulnerability of a college town like IU Bloomington with a very high percentage of its population? younger people um, and the vulnerability to a pandemic like COVID-19. I, I, I know that a lot of it's probably common sense, but can you just talk about, you know, what the situation that IU Bloomington is in? It's a, it's a community that's built on uh, a big university. Its economy runs because of the big university. How vulnerable are we here in Bloomington? Grand well, I think like that. that particular study, you're right, Bob, that was that was all based on economic factors and not health ones or uh, potential resulting in, you know, critical care capacities and things like that. Of course, an outbreak can lead to that, but that was strictly economic. But that, that is a good point. And, you know, if our inability to have people on campus and to be at work and to have school and to have events and graduations and, and athletics, uh, obviously, that has a huge impact on the, the local community, and so I think that's something that the, the city and county have been aware of, and I think they're trying to kind of diversify uh, that a little bit and have over time. Um, but obviously, if we can't have in-person school, if we need to de-densify our campuses or the, you know this massive population that makes up Mary, uh, Monroe County, excuse me, um, that's going to have severe de detrimental effects, and so that's why we're trying our best uh, to set up the system to have the most success with surveillance, uh, testing, mitigation, testing, um, and then more robust contact tracing and case investigation and, and all those protocols and things that we can control on campus. Of course, our biggest challenge will be what could happen off campus, but I will say, and a, a big uh, respect and uh, thanks to Monroe County and the city of Bloomington uh, for taking those steps in the, the new health order uh, that has recently come out. Um, that's going to help us tremendously, and those are the kind of things that we need um, to kind of help us navigate this. Let's broaden out to Indianapolis a little bit. Uh, there's, and again, I know Dr. Ismalis, you work for IU Health. Um, Shandy, you, you're at IUPUI in Indianapolis. Indianapolis 500 is coming up, and there's uh, now a little conflict between you know, IU Health, which is the healthcare provider for the 500, and Indiana Motor, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, because the Speedway has gotten from Marion County the go-ahead to have 25% capacity in the stands for the 500-mile race in August, and IU Health is encouraging them not to do that. So I just wanted to talk about that issue a little bit. I mean, the the um, the, the law, the, the state, the, the governor's executive order says no crowds of more than 250 unless you have a plan, a mitigation plan. And as I understand it, the Speedway has that and got approval from the Marion County Health Department. But why is it, what, what makes it a bad idea or, or an okay idea to have 85, 87,000 people going to the Indianapolis 500 in a few weeks. And Dr. Tom, I'm going to ask you to start that. Um, sure. I, I, I saw that uh, on the on the news with IU Health. I was not aware of any of those uh, discussions. And, and so um, uh, you can understand why it would be a concern to bring a large group of people together and, uh, you know, how are they going to get in and how are they going to get out. And I'm not aware of the uh, IMS's detailed plan, maybe others have more information about it. The way I view it is you need enough barriers to transmission to feel confident that you're not going to have uh, a lot of transmission and create an outbreak. Um, and we're used to thinking of that in healthcare. 
You know, when we have patients in the hospital, a private room is a barrier. Washing your hands, going in and out is a barrier. Wearing a gown is a barrier. Wearing a mask is a barrier. Um, we, we, we establish barriers. When you're doing an event like the Indianapolis 500, it's the same kind of logic. Being outdoors is a barrier because transmission is much less efficient in the outdoor environment. Spreading apart, wearing masks, and I think we'd have to have, you know, the details to know um, uh, how uh, successful this will be or not. But uh, you can certainly understand the concern. Right. Shandy, have you uh, been following that? Um, I mean, only through the news myself. I've not been involved with the planning uh, piece of that. But I can say I think part of the concern, too, is not just the event itself, but those days leading up to the event, as anyone who's been around the Speedway area before a 500, you see lots of people in the restaurants and the bars, that sort of thing. So I think there's some concern from IU Health for those events leading up to it, as well as the actual event. I do know with that capacity, it will still bring it down to about 100,000. That's still a lot of people. Um, and there is a mask mandate, but again, how do you control too many people in a restroom? How do you control too many people in line for food? That sort of thing. So there are a lot of pieces like that that have to be very well planned in order for people not to be clustered together. So, yes, it's great that it's an outdoor event, but it's still a lot of people together, uh, even when wearing masks, in what could be a close proximity. So I could see why there's some concern on the IU health side. Graham, a different um, kind of setting here in Bloomington, you know, there's college football that happens every fall. Um, IU gets probably between 35 and 45,000 people at those games. Uh, this year, we are still planning on having a college football season, though that could change at any minute. If there is such a thing, um, what kind of recommendations would you make to the university for how it should go forward? Well, the first thing, you know, we in Indiana, we're, again, we're a home rule state, and so I think the first call, and, and I know athletics is planning for various scenarios and how to do a socially distanced stadium if that is a, a potential possibility. Uh, but right now we have some limitations with our health order for gatherings as well, uh, and so I'd really want to work with the, the Monroe County Health Department on any kind of specific plans. But the fewer the people, the better. Obviously, outdoors, as we said, is better. Uh, but, again, um, the best uh, current policy for events is likely to, to not have them or be spectatorless. Um, and I think we're seeing some of those challenges already. Um, you know, we talked about the bubble being somewhat successful so far for the NBA. Uh, but of course, you know, teams like the Marlins had half their players test positive on day two of the season. And so that's the real challenge. Even, even these groups that have the resources and the resources that we have, um, it still presents a challenge during this time. And so I know, the Big Ten has gone conference only for this fall. Um, you know, I still think it's probably 50-50 whether they move to the spring. I know the conference is looking at ways they can do testing and, and provide that equity across the conference, but there's uh, still a lot yet to be figured out there. But it goes back to all the same, the same public health measures we would uh, advise on for, for gatherings. Right. So um, I'm going to go back to masks. We only have about three minutes to go in the program. I want to go back to masks for a minute. And um, I know that none of you are, you know, in city or county government, but I, I believe there is a hotline to report what seem to be the most significant or egregious mask and social distancing violations. Um, can any of you or would any of you offer us uh, offer any tips or ideas for, you know, just all of us who are out there in the in the community if we see, you know, a group of students, we see a group of non-students that are gathering together that seem to be ignoring um, ignoring the, the basic uh, guidelines that should be in place. Um, first of all, I guess, does any of you know what that hotline number is? And Dr. Tom, you might be the most, uh, <laughs> the most um, logical person to, to know what that number is. But can any of you just sort of offer, I know, you, again, you're public health people, but what should the public do to try to make sure to police each other? Well, um, I don't know the number off the off the top of my head, but you know, it, this creates obviously a difficult circumstance. We would like to 
educate people, make them understand the value of the mask and make them understand that they're doing it for their fellow uh, uh, residents uh, and that we're all in this together and get cooperation. Um, uh, you know, that may not be entirely feasible, but I always explain to people, you know, if you look around the United States, the 15 states that uh, instituted uh, mandatory mask rules to begin with had a drop in uh, COVID cases. There are many reported situations where the masks have been beneficial, so you try and convince people. Um, other than that, uh, you know, the, the rest of us are not uh, going to be able to enforce mask wearing um, uh, other than by uh, a positive message and a positive encouragement. Um, and hopefully okay. that will that will make a difference. Yeah, so in, in the last minute or so that we have, um, Shandy, I'm going to ask you and, and Graham, you're both connected with universities. We haven't really talked much about IUPUI, but I assume that there are similar um, regulations on the Indianapolis campus as there are in Bloomington? Correct. Yes. So mask use is required across all the IU campuses. And then anyone moving into IUPUI dorms uh, will be tested before they move into the facilities as well. Okay. Well, I think we're we're running out of time. I just re really want to thank all three of you for uh, your patience today. We've had some technical glitches and you but the content of what you've offered has been terrific so i want to thank you uh, shandy durst from the richard m fairbanks school of public health at iupui and graham mckean thanks for being here with us again graham assistant university director of public and environmental health at indiana university and dr tom rasmalis dr rasmalis has been with us several times too MD with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians, specializing in infectious disease. Thank you all for being here and for, for your patience with us. Uh, for um, Noon Edition and for producers Bento Boutier, John Bailey, Mark Chilla, engineers Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.